Welcome to the Paper Talk podcast, where we have candid conversations with emerging artists and industry leaders about all things paper flowers. Through this podcast, we hope to continue to share knowledge, connect all of us together, and elevate the artistry of each and every one of us. Hello, I'm Quinn Wen. I'm Jesse Chu. I'm Priscilla Park. Our mission is to share, connect, and elevate the paper floral industry. We are some of the voices behind the Paper Floors Collective. Welcome to our podcast, Paper Talk. This episode is brought to you by The Paper Place, the place for the paper obsessed, for paper lovers, and for the paper curious. Located in downtown Toronto, Ontario, The Paper Place carries more than 2,000 papers from Japan, Nepal, Italy, and around the globe. It offers unique stationary gifts and other fabulous things, carefully curated by the very talented owner, Heather Sauer. The store is a feast for the eyes, and you just have to see it for yourself. To find out more about their products, head to their website, www.thepaperplace.com. Or to their brick and mortar location. Hello, everybody. Today, I'm so excited to welcome a special guest. This is someone I've known and worked with. This is episode number 24, by the way. I know 25. We're on 25. This is our silver podcast. So exciting, you guys. <laughs> 25 weeks out. It's amazing. So this special guest, I actually met her about four years ago, and she was one of the first, I guess, wholesaler that I ever worked with. This is Marlo Miyashiro. Most of you probably, if you follow me along, you know that I did my first window display with her at the Handmade Showroom in Seattle downtown. Marlo, welcome to our podcast. Hi, Hi thanks Marlo. for having me. <laughs> it's great to meet you. Great to meet you too. So I don't think a lot of people know who you are or what you do, but she is a big force in Seattle, I would say. So. <laughs> well, yeah, I've been around for a little while. <laughs> I'm a, what I'm calling a former jewelry artist now, and I'm a mentor and teacher, kind of a serial entrepreneur, if you will. I'm just basically overall very passionate about supporting and promoting artists and the work that they do. The way that that kind of transpired was I was the organizer for the local Seattle Etsy team. We were known as Etsy Rain and later as Seattle Handmade. I did that for about 10 years. We grew the group to about 1,500 members all over Western Washington. I did a bunch of craft shows, ended up with a very large craft show at a really fancy location in Seattle, I was moving toward having my own retail store in 2014. So I kind of looked around for about a year looking for retail spaces. Couldn't find anybody to rent to me. Um, retail was always very risky. Gave up the search. And about a few months later, the managing director, uh, the then managing director, Pacific Place, contacted us through our meetup group, asking if we were interested in doing a pop-up at the mall. So yeah, we kind of jumped at the chance to do it. You know, I had been working on this business plan for the Handmade Showroom for a little over a year and we were ready to do it. My co-organizer, Casey Covedo, she helped me kind of get the initial concept going. We negotiated to actually move into a, an, a storefront that instead of just like kind of like a kiosk pop-up, which was the original idea, uh, we got into a full-on store and started with just weekends, thinking that we were going to rotate artists through and that was going to be super easy, like a weekend show every week. <laughs> <laughs> and anytime I found that anytime I tell myself, oh, this is going to 
be super easy. It's not. It's not going to be super easy. <laughs> yes. But it's going to be very meaningful. For sure. So um, we opened up the store in, I think it was June of 2015. We were weekends only to start. When the holidays came around in 2015, we decided to go completely full time and just see if it was going to work. And it did. We went from an initial 35 artists to after the first two years of being open full time, we were up to over 100, about 120, I think, yeah. in that first wow. phase. And you do such an amazing job curating that store. Like you walk in, you just want to buy everything. And you're thinking, <laughs> I wish I made more money. <laughs> That's the goal, for yes. sure. I mean, the overall concept was always how to bring really quality handmade work to people who normally don't shop at craft shows or even online. Some people didn't even know what Etsy was. Shocking but true, um, <laughs> you know. And we wanted to bring, you know, the, the kind of quality artists work that we knew existed and just sort of put it out there for a wider audience to see. So the happenstance of being offered a space that was in a mall was kind of the best thing ever. And it just happens to be kind of the high-end mall that's in downtown Seattle. Exactly. Um, there's like neighbors. a Barney's. There's yeah. Um, yeah. Well, like formerly Barney's. Yes, that's <laughs> They're not true. here anymore. Oh, what's <laughs> their have, new now? They moved. They, they left. Oh, they yeah. did? Oh, oh yeah. Oh my gosh, yeah. I haven't been down there in a while then. <laughs> Uh, they just moved out. It was last month. So okay. yeah, or a couple months ago. So it was, so our current current neighbors are Tiffany's. We have Kate Spade and Michael Kors, J. Crew, some of the higher end sort of chain stores. Mm-hmm. And then there's us who, you know, an independent store kind of in the middle of all these national brands, but really, really fitting in. So I sure. think it was, it was a nice surprise for the management who maybe didn't understand that handmade could equal quality, that we could really pull it off and make it look like a store that would appeal to the same kind of customer that they have. Exactly. I was going to ask you, I mean, we talk, you, you talk a lot about curating and even Quinn was saying you, you curate so well, you have such an eye. How do you go about curating? You know, when we first started, um, we of course knew a lot of local artists. So we were lucky to have about 35 artists to come on board and support the initial, the initial concept, which was a temporary store. When we grew into more of a permanent idea, I started actually looking online for any local artists, either through Etsy, Instagram, Facebook, anywhere that I could really just random searches for mm-hmm. uh, particular categories that we needed to fill. Because the thing that we learned very early on is in order to create a cohesive shopping experience, mm-hmm. we sort of needed to look at it like it was sort of a mini department store. Right. So we have paper goods and we have housewares and kitchenware. We have some kind of clothing. So divided into adult clothing and kids clothing and then the toys, you know, could be divided mm-hmm. down to, to kind of practical toys or plush toys, things like that. So we divided it up pretty early on so that we would have a good representation mm-hmm. of the many different kinds of mediums that are out there right. in the handmade world. And we just keep focused on making sure that every collection that we have is elevated enough so that it really makes Makes sense together, even if it's two totally different styles, the customer sort of understands that, you know, when the quality is there, the only decision they need to make is which one do I buy? Right. Yeah. So when we're looking to fill 
any of those categories. It really is kind of filling in some sort of niche that isn't filled yet. Yeah. That makes sense. So let's talk about how the store has evolved. Not only do you have one, but you actually have two stores. Are they pretty close in location? Yeah, we just opened up a second store right next door to the Handmade Showroom. We are on the second floor of Pacific Place in downtown Seattle. That's our current space. Uh, We found out that the space right next door was opening up. The fashion designer that was there needed to move. And we were kind of faced with the idea of, well, do we consider opening a second store for the holidays? Or do we chant either the store being empty, which would be not great, or some other store concept moving in that wasn't necessarily compatible with Elevated Handmade? So I spoke to Paul and I said, hey, the space next door is opening up. And his immediate response was, you want to expand? That's and, so awesome. And Paul's her husband. He is yeah. been so amazing. I love talking to him, working with him. He's just an amazing person to be by your side while you're doing this. Yeah, it's it's really, we're so lucky to have him on board. He has a full-time job, but yet he takes care of all of the financial side and the bookkeeping side of the business. Uh, he likes, he prefers to sort of be in the background and not necessarily called out for being an owner, but he definitely is. Like we, we work together on this thing every day and been great. I mean, luckily we work really well together. So, you know, we're kind of meant to be together. So good. <laughs> That's awesome. How long have you two been together now? Uh, gosh, I think it's been 10 years, maybe a little over 10 years. Yeah. Lost track. <laughs> Which I guess is a good thing. <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs> so tell us about this new store. What are you stocking in there and how does it work together or is it compatible? Does it elevate your handmade showroom even more? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we decided to create a completely new brand, which we named Bezel and Hilm. A little bit difficult to say, but it is exactly what we're focusing on because bezel refers to the piece of metal around a stone that holds a stone into a piece of jewelry or the ring of metal around a watch face. And kiln is the high temperature oven that ceramicists use to create their wares. And the focus of the store is higher end jewelry, accessories, and housewares. Love it. Um, So yeah, bezel and kiln is an extension of the handmade showroom. And we have a really wonderful collection of jewelry and housewares in the showroom, but we wanted to expand on that concept and bring in artists that were that are from um, everywhere, kind of national artists and bringing in higher end uh, jewelry collections and housewares and just kind of creating more of a gallery environment. We wanted to bring together a really cohesive collection of higher-end jewelry and housewares so that we could create sort of a gallery environment. The Bezel and Kiln is an extension of the Handmade Showroom. We, uh, We have a really great collection of artists who make jewelry and housewares, but when we had the opportunity to open up this new space, I've always wanted to own like a higher end handmade gallery style space. And we were able to kind of put together a vision of what that could be in the new space. So we 
put together like a vision board uh, for the management here and said, hey, we want to bring in these national jewelry artists and ceramicists and bring in things from all over the country, not just the Pacific Northwest, because there's so much great stuff out there that hasn't been seen in Seattle yet. So that's our focus is to bring in at least 50% of the artists that we have have never been seen in Seattle and are amazing. So we put together that concept and it's pretty fancy. You know, we have lots of rose gold mirror and shiny mirrors and things like that all over. And we were able to buy some really amazing jewelry displays from actually Barney's that went out of business and for, or not, not out of business. They closed their, they closed their store next door. So we were able to buy Barney's. That's awesome. <laughs> jewelry displays. <laughs> and that was sort of the final thing that really just kind of brought up the whole concept of the space. And so now we have these two very distinctly different stores. You know, the handmade showroom is still very accessible, very warm, and a kind of a gift, a gift shop where you can find gifts for just about anybody. Gifts that are made by very talented artists and many of whom are local to the Pacific Northwest. And then Bezel and Kiln is a higher end concept. It's immediately, it immediately reads as a higher end jewelry store. And we carry leather goods for men. We carry these wonderful Egyptian cotton wraps that are made by an artist in New York. We brought in a bunch of jewelry artists who are just amazing. And yeah, I can't wait to bring in more, really. Oh, that sounds really fantastic. So a vendor wants to like apply or be part of your store. How do they go about doing it? Yeah, right now we we have an application on the Handmade Showroom website at thehandmadeshowroom.com. There is a, a link for artists to apply. And it basically acts as a place for us to keep artist information when it basically acts as a place for us to keep a list of artist information so that when there are openings in a particular category, we can look at a short list of available artists and hopefully find somebody that fills the, the gap that's in the category. The other way that we find artists is to actively look through mostly Instagram right now. We're finding a lot of artists through Instagram. Some of the artists will sometimes uh, follow us or message us and we really do want to see you know, who, who's following us and kind of check out what they're doing as well. We follow hashtags. We go onto Etsy periodically and kind of see what people are posting there. We also have recently been participating or looking for artists on websites like fair, fair.com, F-A-I-R-E. They are a hosted website basically and there's the ability to sort into handmade collections so we search like that as well people can email us directly with information and links to websites and things but yeah there's it's really the bottom line is you know if we do not have an opening in a particular category then no matter how amazing something is we're not able to bring it on because we really are very limited in space both stores each of them are a thousand square foot each and so we're very we have to be very particular about the quantity of things that we carry. That's amazing. But how would a vendor make themselves look more attractive to you with their wholesale pricing? Can we talk about that? Sure. I mean, wholesale pricing is a pretty big category or a big topic. 
topic to talk about, but I know that people really kind of want to see or hear about, you know, how how it goes. So traditionally, uh, I feel like a lot of people say just mark it up 50% and then mm-hmm. sell it to them. But I feel like that's changing quite a bit with so many artists producing and selling their products to storefronts. How would an artist make their product a little bit more attractive and give them a slight edge to marketing it to a store like you? Yeah, wholesale pricing is a pretty big discussion to have. And I know it's difficult, especially for emerging artists who are just sort of starting to think about selling their work. The best bit of advice that I could give right off the top is decide whether or not you're eventually going to want to sell to stores. If that is, if the answer to that question is a yes, then whenever you're looking at pricing your work, the price, your minimum price that you assign to any particular item needs to be considered your wholesale price. Wholesale meaning the price that you sell to a store and then they will in turn mark it up to make the money that they need to cover their overhead. So your wholesale price covers everything you need to run, not only run your business, but grow your business. So it needs to include your time, definitely your time, your materials, the cost of the materials it would take to replace the thing that you just sold, and also the things that you don't think about, the time that you spend uh, packaging the pieces, the time that you spend putting your website together or putting listings together. You know, this is all time that is invested into creating your work. And so whatever that price, the minimum price you set for your pieces, that needs to cover all of that. And then and that's the price that you present to someone who owns a store and they will they will take their own markup. Normally, it's uh, somewhere between 2.2 to 2.5 of the wholesale price. And the reason for that is because that extra percentage helps to cover the, the unknown costs that maybe they don't think about. The time it takes to pack or to unpack a box to pay somebody to do that. The time that it takes to answer emails and all of this, you know, all the administrative things, um, covering the lights and, you know, not even to mention the, uh, the employee costs, which are the, the biggest cost of running a business. You know, they have, they have their expenses too. So I think one of the, the biggest mistakes artists make is to look at wholesale pricing as I have to cut my price in half in order to sell to a store. That causes a lot of anxiety uh, with artists, you know, because normally if you're pricing to what you consider a retail price, you're not going to be able to take half off of that price because you're trying to get as much as you can. The, the thing is, is that artists, 99% of artists out there undervalue their work and they undervalue the perceived value of their work. So if, if an artist comes to me and says, you know, well, I price this at this price because that's all I can sell it for. Maybe that's true of your market. But in my store, if I'm looking at the price that you have on your table at a craft show, for instance, and I tell you that looks like your wholesale price rather than a full retail price. That means that I could take the price that you have on your sign and easily double it, if not more. And very, I can see very easily selling it to my customer base who doesn't shop at craft shows and is looking for things that are very special and unique that they wouldn't be able to find themselves. I love it. That was such a good answer because I feel like a lot of artists, they do undermine or undervalue their product (laughs) by far. I think it starts with being a beginner artist and they're just starting to realize people love their product and they have that lack of self-confidence of saying my product is valued XYZ. And I think one of the best advice that a friend has given to me is like your friends that look at your work and that 
you talk to on a daily basis, they're not your customer because mm-hmm. they're pretty much like mine because that's why you hang out with them because they, they're like you. And if you feel like, you know, you're in this particular income bracket, you're marketing to the same pretty much. So whereas a storefront that Marlo has, it's definitely shooting for a higher end and she knows her customer base really well. And she's able to price things in a certain manner that can approach and get the right customer to purchase your product. And I think sometimes you just need to aim a little bit higher and make sure your product is aligned with that customer bracket. Mm-hmm. I think that's such an important thing to like, you need to learn and understand. And I think that just takes time and experience of selling your product and then seeing what happens. Yeah. I mean, taking a chance to raise your prices is one of the pieces of advice I give to almost every artist who I come across who I feel is not pricing their work correctly. You know, the, the bottom line is really, it's not just your friends who aren't your customer, but you are not your customer also, mostly because you're the one who makes it. So you know how much or how little goes into making the things that you make. And so you would never go to a store and pay three times that amount in order to take it home because you don't need to, right? When you hear about emerging businesses having to research a brand or create a brand around their work, the brand is, is always, it should always shoot a little bit above what you assume your customer is going to be because, you know, why not shoot a little higher and price a little bit higher than you're comfortable with because once you start selling it at that price, you know, you'll prove to yourself that it's definitely worth it. You know, full retail is also something that supports the entire handmade community. If we are, you know, at a craft show next to artists who are selling their things for way too little, that brings the whole perceived value of handmade down for everyone all around them. And it's a struggle to to keep that, to keep that up. So, you know, you're also, you're not just doing it for yourself. You're also by pricing your, your product appropriately, you're also supporting the rest of the community. So true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's one thing that the Paper Flowers Collective is trying to do is we're trying to elevate our paper flowers mm-hmm. and to make sure that the perceived notion of a handmade paper flower is a special thing and that it does take a lot of hours, a lot of experience as you grow and learn and to be able to perceive ourselves as a high-end product is where we want to be. And I think that is all about educating our the artists. It's about educating our customers on why our flowers are special. And I love that you do that with all your vendors at your store because when you walk in, you know each item has been carefully selected to have that perceived notion that everything is wonderfully curated and you're going to find a special gift that no one else in the city is going to have. So I love that. Yeah, thank you. Oh man. Yeah, you know, the pricing thing, it's very difficult to talk about because it is so ingrained in our uh, consumer society that the lower price is better you know, don't pay full retail, you know, bargain shop and all of that stuff. And don't get me wrong. I'm a huge bargain shopper. Like I will not pay full price for just about anything. (laughs) Um, So again, I am not my own customer. I'm not the person that I'm trying to attract to bring into my store. You know, I want to bring in, you know, my, my friend's mother who shops as a hobby, (laughs) you know, and, (laughs) and when she sees something that, especially something that is one of a kind or limited or made by an artist, things that are made by artists are inherently limited. You know, they know the value of that and they are able to allow themselves to purchase things that really speak to them. Having a store full of items like that and tempting items like that um, is sort of why we're here, you know, and just to bring to light that handmade goods are, they can be really, really amazing and they can Mm -hmm. fit into everybody's life. It doesn't have to be a a difficult thing to find really quality handmade work. Mm -hmm. I love that. No, I think this discussion is so informative because like you said, pricing is such a difficult discussion to have, but you actually 
actually own a store, right? Mm-hmm. You actually have that experience. We're on the other end where we don't have that experience. We don't know what the expectations are. We only know what we expect from ourselves and what we see from a lot of crafts, uh, craft uh, shows, actually. I mean, we get a ton of inquiries about, you know, how do I get into craft shows? Which craft shows are good? But we're talking about completely different uh, market here. So it's really interesting hearing from you as a retail store owner um, and someone who has a specific target in in mind of the actual expectations that you have as opposed to, you know, what we as makers have. Well, and the other thing is really, really helpful. Thank you. I mean, the other thing is that I'm an artist myself. I've had my own line of jewelry that I made and marketed for about 12 years, sold to about 200 stores all over, did a lot of trade shows, learned the business from that side of the business, have been told many times to raise my prices that I don't have, that I don't value my work enough and things like mm-hmm. that. I oftentimes buy wholesale buyers, you know, of course, after they paid my lower price. probably <laughs> 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 like, we got a deal. <laughs> you should have raised your prices. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's very, it's kind of interesting to think of it in that term, you know, in the, in that way, because uh, yeah, there, there will be times if you are underpricing your work and you sell it to a store and you visit the store later and you see that they marked up three times what you price it at because they know they can get that amount for it. That should be an, a big sign. It should be a sign. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that should be an indicator that you need to rework your pricing to really appeal to the market that you're mm-hmm. selling to. A lot of artists take it very badly. Like it, it's some sort of they're stealing from the artist or, you know, if you're going to market up three times, then why didn't you give that to me? And it's like, well, because they're, it's their business, you know, mm-hmm, they can, sure. if they think that they can take something that you're selling for $20 and sell it for $2,000, then, and they find that person to spend $2,000, and that should be a, a motivator for you to really start understanding who you're actually selling to, who your end customer is. Exactly. You know, it happens. Yep. Mm-hmm. Not in my store, but it happens. <laughs> Because I feel like when you take a vendor under your wing, you actually help them and educate them and kind of say, this is what I'm thinking. This is how we're going to make it happen. I feel like you really, you're not just a retail store. I feel like you're a mentor to each and every person that sells their product at your place. So I love that about you. Thank you. I try to be very supportive because having been an artist and also, you know, I... I consult with emerging artists and help them kind of get through a lot of these things. And it's just in my nature to tell somebody, you know, you could sell this for a lot more if you just simply change the number on the price tag. You don't have to be okay with it. You don't have to feel comfortable with it. Just do it and see what happens because normally they're not selling a lot of them anyway, (laughs) you know? So raising prices is just an experiment. And, Mm -hmm. you know, more often than not, a higher price is accepted. The way I the way that I describe raising prices is oftentimes if something is priced too low, and most people will relate to this, if it's priced too low, then in your brain you're thinking, is there something wrong with this? Is it why is this discounted so heavily? Or why is this so cheap compared to other things that seem to be the same quality? Maybe they don't know what they're doing, or maybe the pictures aren't really showing what is what I'm really gonna get. You know, there's mm-hmm. all of these questions when the price is much too low. And so, you know, you kind of want to match that perceived value from your customer, from whoever, if it's a store buyer or somebody at a 
craft show, you want to sort of match how it is that they see your work. One way to tell for sure, like if you're at a craft show and you sell out consistently, you for sure need to raise your prices. <laughs> you know, you're left with like a handful of things. I mean, yay, great. You sold a lot of stuff. But, um, you know, you could be working a lot less and making the same mm-hmm. amount of money if you doubled your prices, for instance. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. So true. I think the hardest part for all of the artists is like believing themselves to raise the price. I think they, it's a battle that you like internally, like I'm cheap, but I'm also like, I want to give the people the value of getting a product that I believe in, mm-hmm. but it's hard as yeah. I think go through that. And it's, it's about experience, about selling, about being in the industry and talking to other people and selling your product over and over. And once you get that, then you start understanding, okay, I understand it now. I'm ready to raise my price. And in that confidence, that really helps a lot. Yeah. The the other thing that I hear from artists a lot is the excuse. And it really is an excuse to try to keep prices low. They say, well, I want to be able to sell to everyone. I want everyone to be able to buy my work. I don't want to overprice it because then I'm going to leave some people out. And the fact is, even if you were giving your things away, if you were paying (laughs) people to take it off of your table, there will be lots of people who wouldn't take it. So true. So the idea Mm -hmm. that, oh, everyone has to be able to afford my work Mm -hmm. um, is just an excuse because of the fear of being rejected if you Mm -hmm. raise your price to a more, if you raise your prices to match the perceived value. Yeah. So can I give you a question? Hypothetically, I'm also even hypothetically. Mm -hmm. Do you think then it's, is it the artist trying to, let's say, meet a certain market or is it the artist determining what market she wants to meet. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because when we're talking about a quality of flowers, we all have different styles. Mm-hmm. I call them styles. Mm-hmm. But let's say your style just isn't high end enough, mm-hmm. but you want it to be high end. Then is it you trying to, I mean, is the goal you trying to make it look high end or are you pricing it um, in a way that meets, let's say, not the high end market because that's not what, that's not the market that will purchase. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I think so. Um, it could like a kind of like a chicken and egg kind of thing. Right. Well, look at it this way. If you go onto Etsy, for instance, today, and you search for a particular category, paper flowers, and you search uh, for red rose paper flowers, and you come up with the search results, sort it from high to low and just see what happens when you see the products that are literally priced, you know, $3,000 for a bouquet of flowers. And sometimes they're, they're obviously worth it. Sometimes you have no idea what they were on when they were trying to price their work. <laughs> like, if you really think that that is worth it, you must have some hidden diamonds in that thing. You know? and, and it's just because your perceived value is not mm-hmm. to that level. I usually caution artists to try um, to avoid trying to make pass a judgment on their own work about whether or not it's worth marketing toward whatever market or customer that you're trying to go for. Because ultimately, the customer is going to decide. I've seen I've seen work out there just in various mediums that make me think, wow, that person has an obscene level of confidence <laughs> because <laughs> they're pricing that at, at a value that I cannot understand. It is way higher than I would ever imagine that to be worth. But you know, if they sell one thing mm-hmm. at whatever show they're at, they've made their money, you know? So they just need that one customer. So there, there's a middle ground there, you know, a middle ground between uh, pricing too low because assuming that, oh, if I have low prices or if I put everything on sale all the time, 
that more people will buy it, you know, that is going to be the same amount of money as if you raised your prices a little bit and then sold to the people who really value the quality that you have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I 100% agree with that because once you hit that right target market and you price it certain ways, you're going to attract the customer that you really want. And I love the fact that my customer trusts in what I do. Mm-hmm. I will talk about the color palette, the flowers they want, but they leave everything in my hand and then they trust me to create what they have in mind. Right. And it's all about questions and answers, making sure that you have, you understand your customer and you understand what she wants before you invoice them mm-hmm. for it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It is, it's a, it's definitely worth it to communicate with your customer or with a wholesale buyer, especially at the beginning. In the handmade market, there are definitely more people like me who are willing to coat an emerging artist through their initial pricing stages. Some people don't have the time or interest in doing that. But, you know, I'll run across new artists every now and then and just feel like, okay, they need a little bit of advice. They can raise their prices and do much better, probably sell more work because it would be more in line with the the level of quality that they have. So yeah, it's definitely worth having those conversations. Yeah. Pricing is such an interesting question. Mm -hmm. It's just so, there's so many answers Mm -hmm. and so many different platforms and things to be exploring on. I think, I think another thing, that artists really have a difficult time putting a value on is their time. Mm -hmm. You know, I often hear things like, oh, well, I just do the stitching in front of my TV when I'm eating dinner or, you know, oh, I just, I do, I do this part in the car when I'm waiting for my kid to get out of school, you know, as if that is throwaway time. (laughs) <laughs> you know, like that time isn't valuable or doesn't cost anything. You know, mm-hmm. there there are other things that you could be doing, you know, and instead you're choosing to to take that time to create something out of nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, that time is valuable. And, you know, the other way to look at it, if you have a difficult time placing a value on that kind of time is asking yourself, how much would I need to pay somebody else to sit in front of the TV and do this stuff for me? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. that that oftentimes will will create an instant level of value because, you know, some artists will do things by themselves for their entire career and they love doing it that way. They're more comfortable. They don't want to be responsible for other people doing their stuff. But often, you know, other times artists need to expand. They need to create more work than one person can physically do in any reasonable amount of time. And so thinking in terms of expanding your business and how much it would cost to bring on another you or another potential you into your business that helps to sort of take it um, a level outside of yourself. So you're not so emotionally connected to that value mm-hmm. proposition. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much, Marla, for this amazing discussion. I feel like we can go on and on about pricing and about, mm-hmm. you know, how to place your product in a store. But we really appreciate your time and valuable information. Thanks. Yeah. It's definitely a lot of fun. This kind of this kind of thing is something that, you know, really makes me happy. So thank you for inviting me to be here. And yeah, I appreciate your time. Oh, no. Thank you for sharing your experience with our followers and with us. (laughs) (laughs) Such an interesting discussion. Yeah. Thank you so much. So Marlo, you've been talking about mentoring a lot of new emerging artists. Is that something that you do on a regular basis? Yeah, I definitely really enjoy helping emerging artists kind of get their businesses together and sort of grow their creative business. I have a website called creativeartsconsulting.com that 
that I put some of that information there. So if anybody wants to get in touch with me, I do free half hour phone appointments to sort of talk to each other and see if we're a good fit to help you to. Yeah, absolutely. We'll have that on, on the blog. So any of your links, including your business consulting service as well, and Marlo's website and the Headmate Showroom website as well. So I think our followers will be really interested in that. Very good. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Yeah. I'm looking forward to talking to anybody who needs a little bit of help. Thank you so much, Marlo. Yeah. Oh man, yeah. thank you. It was so fun. <laughs> Thank you.